As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I think! And time, and time again. Break up the music. Charge your glass. This nation is going to dance all night. The football pheromones of the early Sky Sports era. The previously untold stories of an off-duty Peter Drury. The relentless footballing present tense. Managers who can whistle with their fingers. Where players should look during a post-match interview. The misunderstood Jose Mourinho. Premier League stars at the golf or the snooker. And the man who invented pre-game TV poetry. Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 157 of Football Clichés. I'm Adam Hurry and with me for this one is Charlie Eccleshare. How's it going? Good, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, in our kind of implied series of words that sound like they should be football words, given that kind of approximately 8% of football talk is dedicated purely to speculating on a team's hopes of doing something, perhaps we should uh, give Steve McManaman the benefit of the doubt here. I think he's onto something here. Maybe we do need a new word for this. But, you know, I'm with the lads. I still think City will, will score goals and possibly, probably win the game over there, the way they've played. But they've given Madrid a slimmer of hope. And once they go back there with the fans, it's a different scenario than it has been tonight. I like slimmer, Charlie. Slimmer works. It's like a, a sliver and a glimmer. A slim glimmer. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Though I think they maybe have a little more than a slimmer. I think a slimmer sounds mm. like a, an even, even slimmer than a glimmer. But, mm. um... Yeah. It's such a nuanced thing. We've talked recently about hopes hanging by a thread and, and mm. dents and hammer blows. I, I'm all for extra entries into this, extra levels. More it does show, yeah, it does show our preoccupation, doesn't it, with uh, yeah, with hopes and dreams. Absolutely. Um, speaking of hopes and dreams, I'm completing one of mine now because joining us for Mesut Harland Dicks today is former Soccer Saturday T-boy, ITV football roving reporter, cousin of both one half of Rizzle Kicks and the front man of Cooler Shaker, the Al Pacino to Gabriel Clark's Robert De Niro, and the author of Square Peg, Round Ball, Football TV and Me, it's Ned Bolting. Hello, Ned. Hello, what a fantastic introduction. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. It's really good. It's really good. I enjoyed um I enjoyed the slimmer just now from Steve McManaman and it made me think that he was um he was always described when he was playing as being willowy, wasn't he? Mm. He was a willowy yeah. winger. Mm-hmm. Um he was almost slimmery, wasn't it? You could so he was a slimmery sort of player. So he's it's a halfway between a shimmer and a willowy kind of thing. So he, I think it works. Yeah, like it does work. the man like the verb that came out of his mouth. So Yeah, I like it. Yeah, he's cuz he's kind of he was rangy, he was tall, rangy. but he was kind of elusive at the same 
same time because he was kind of a dribbling, willowy, kind of silky slimmery, player. Yeah. So slim, ship, slimmery. slimmery, yeah. The slimmery, slippery as well. It's all in yeah. there. It's all mixed up in there. Mm. Perfect. Yeah, it all works. It all works. Football is very welcoming to this sort of thing. We can do what we like. Absolutely right. Your book is wonderful. It is it, a great read. Thank you. And it answers so many questions about the inner workings of football on TV <laughs> that I never even knew to ask. And it raises so many more. So we want to get stuck into that first before we get into your irritations and fascinations mm. of modern football. Um, let's go all the way back to 1995 when you when you became Jeff Stelling's T-boy at Soccer Saturday. Yes. Um, that was a very weird era of Soccer Saturday, an era that a lot of people don't realise existed because it was when he was kind of Stelling was kind of sat about twenty yards away from the pundits, <laughs> so it looked like he was. They were like co-defendants in a dystopian future trial that he was presiding over. Very weird era of Soccer Saturday. It was, and before it was called Soccer Saturday, actually, in its first incarnation, it was called Sports Saturday. And I had a kind of. I think when Sky launched, they wanted to go up against Grandstand, which obviously you know Grandstand would feature its healthy dose of whatever they had on offer. You know, whether it was back in the day and Speedway and wrestling or whatever, you know, through to lots of horse racing. So. So it had a much wider remit. And so they used to try out all sorts of stuff. I remember Jill Dando doing some sort of netball action in the studio and all sorts was going on. And then bit by bit, its, it's focus got sharpened until it became... Mm. It became Soccer Saturday and then and then became right. the sort of thing that it is. Yeah, so very weird, a very weird show at first. The, the picture that you paint of Sky at that time, the kind of early days of Sky doing everything they could to, to get a foothold in the broadcasting landscape. Um, it's a very vivid picture. Um, this is the first passage that I'd like to read. You say, add to that mix the physical presence of Richard Keyes and Andy Gray, and you might get a sense of the sheer concentration of football pheromones being pumped through the air conditioning and permeating the air we all breathed. Did you um? Do you ever get ever get pulled into their orbit, Ned? I the first time they they made a big play of of not knowing anyone's name who wasn't of kind of like great importance <laughs> to them, and I certainly slid under their radar. I mean, I was a very wow. junior reporter, and I barely made my mark before I left Sky as quickly as I could, frankly. But I did I did interact with them once. I the first time I was sent to cover. A, the build-up to an FA Cup final was in 1999 and I was stationed outside, so that was Manchester United beating Newcastle, Rude Hullett's Newcastle United in 99. And I was stationed... Yeah, where Keezy talks about the thermometer on the pitch, I think, uh, in the lead-up to the game. Oh, that- There's this weird thing where he... Uh- reads the temperature in a slightly odd keezy way. He explains to Rodney Marsh how thermometers work. Yes, yeah. A great footballing moment. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I must have missed that because I, I, I was already driving home in a, to- a state of total despondency because um, I, I was stationed outside Newcastle United's hotel somewhere in Hertfordshire and I'd been there since 6.30 in the morning uselessly, you know, and, and the first live cross or as we tend to call them in television parlance, between me and uh, Richard Keyes, who's a man I'd never actually spoken to in real life, um, mm. came at about you know sometime, sometime after nine, and he said, um, "What are the Newcastle United players? What have they had for breakfast, Nick?" And deliberately called me by my wrong name. Oh God, uh, how Keyes is this? Yeah, and, and it was it was it was a real slap down to a junior reporter, and it put me thoroughly in my place. That, apart from the fact that I had absolutely no idea what Newcastle United had eaten for for breakfast, because um, no one was telling me, and, and that's very much a part of the whole story, the whole narrative of Square Peg Round Ball, in that you know the door from that moment on, 1999, I think was a key moment in the in the kind of like the creaking shut of the door that is now hermetically sealed on any kind of. <laughs> access whatsoever to the, the wow. higher echelons of the game there is a kind of running theme of your book of it very sort of self-deprecatory it's almost like you, you stumbled into it and then you were stumbling around doing it and, and you, you you paint this picture of a kind of this <laughs> this kind of reluctant uh, and I, I don't know sort of slightly hapless figure I have to say so you, you seem willing to to kind of paint this picture of yourself in the early days at Sky of sort of being <laughs> sort of stumbling around just being told to do different things but not doing them very well yeah but middle this there's a very proud moment perhaps the biggest influence you've ever had on football broadcasting from our perspective but something that, that has always concerned us on this podcast and I, I'm gonna have to kind of um, <laughs> take you to task for oh, it. no you invented poetry before tv games I, i'm afraid i think i did <laughs> I, I, I and i and i do to be fair i hold but thank you for picking up on that because it's something i have to get off my chest um but i have written i think i did i mean i, I i'm there to be corrected if someone can um c- can find you know further evidence that predates my my contribution but yeah it, it all began with the with barnsley's presence in the in the <laughs> premier league <laughs> And um, and the presence in their ranks of their of their resident poet, who's now quite a, a staple of Radio 4's output, isn't he? Um, Ian McMillan, 
um, who mm. I made contact with, and, and we put him, we put his silvery words on the silver screen, and uh, and and that was it. And I thought it was great at the time, and so I I hit the ground running and, and invented more and more reasons to put poetry in front of <laughs> in front mm. of football matches as often. You were and doing it lo- ten years later before the Champions League final, Liverpool AC Milan. Uh, you couldn't get enough. I of couldn't it. get Stop enough of it. I stopped. <laughs> My poet, yeah, exactly. Sometimes I wrote the poetry. Sometimes I've got actual poets to write the poems. We got Clive right. Owen to read one of my poems ahead of the the, the big final in in, in um, Istanbul. And then I suddenly woke up one morning and went, "You've got to stop doing that because everybody hates it." And not only that, but everybody, <laughs> nobody in the pub is actually listening because the sound is turned down <laughs> anyway. You know. And um, so I, I, I yeah, I, I apologise. I think it's been, I think it's been kind of weeded out of the system now, hasn't it? I don't think. Yeah. I think it peaked Still a little there. bit, just, about. just crossing over from from football to other sports. It peaked a little bit in the in the London Olympics. I seem to remember. That yeah, there was a lot. Well, of I it. remember. I remember as well before the 2008 Wimbledon final between Federer and Nadal, and they between they read excerpts of if the Roger oh, Kipling poem, which, which is put up so you had and Nadal whose English was really bad at this point is kind of like if you can treat those two imposters <laughs> just the same and you were to blame for that man. this <laughs> all it. came from you I, no more I think, if yeah I think I think it's true but I mean I I, I hold my hands up I, I'm yeah I, it's a, it was a bad mistake and I'm sorry for all the misery I've inflicted on people for far too long <laughs> Well, I wouldn't call it misery. Well, Don't go, let's not go that far. But the fact that Barnsley seems to be kind of the um, the ground zero for all of this yeah. seems to make sense. Kind of cobbly, yeah. newly promoted Barnsley. Right it for cliches, wasn't it? It was club poet. very fertile ground. Very fertile ground for for you know quite easy um, rhyming schemes. Nothing too challenging, and uh, and and generally a nice nice down to earth feel. Yeah, it was born out of the fact that you kind of got. You got the sense that a lot of this kind of football content, especially kind of preview football content, was very by the numbers, and you wanted to shake it up, which which I completely sympathise with. But at some point in the book, perhaps the point at which you're starting to fall out of love with football, having worked in it for for so many years, you start to convey the general mundanity of producing football content, sort of mini interviews and previewy stuff. And um, some of these little aspects of it are are just they're just exactly how I imagined they would be. You talk about filming links for um for various football programs and you talk about the various poses that a football reporter can can adopt there was the nonchalant lean against the goalpost with arms folded so i could just see it in my head it's mm. normally number three on the list. You normally tick off the first, the really low, low hanging fruits. But by about the third link, you've 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 reached for the nonchalant lean on the goalpost. Yeah. Right. So knowing that you're something of a Germanophile, mm. you start this. You start your book with this word and fifth and fifth. Yeah. Which is the whistle blast that denotes the beginning of a game. It's literally that. I can't think they're of. A, at, they're good at words, aren't they, Jim? I can't think of a more succinct way of translating it because it is that. And fifth, and and, if, and I think the final chapter or before the, the epilogue is called Upfifth, which is the opposite. Yeah. The whistle blast. I was going to get to that. You're oh, oh I'm now. sorry. I've jumped. I've jumped <laughs> the gun. I've jumped the gun. Um, well, quite rightly so. Let's let's blow the whistle on Mesut Harland Dicks with Ned Bolting. Ned, tell us about your first fascination of football, please. Well, it's in in preparation for recording this podcast. You pointed me in the way, and I'm delighted that you did of a recently recorded podcast that you did with a close friend of mine. And um, a, a giant of the broadcasting landscape in more ways than one because he's about six foot three. Okay. Uh, my former colleague, Peter Drury. And I think c- consistently over the last 20 years, I think he's been one of the greatest things in football bar none. <laughs> and I had the distinct honour on, 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 you know, through many years of seeing Peter Drury backstage for the real Peter Drury that he is. And what, <laughs> one, mem- one memory, see, he and I used to be, we, we, used to, we used to be very much the B team at ITV. So, you know, you've got your A team, which is the Tildesley, um, uh, Clark, uh, kind of um, Townsend situation, and then yeah. and then over on the digital channels, they'd bury the likes of Beglin, Bolting, and Drury. Um, so w- <laughs> we would often be. This is a simple economics of, of a, a free-to-air broadcast like ITV. If a London club was playing in the Champions League, they'd be digital. Um, uh, the north, the big clubs of the northwest that play in red would be on ITV One. Fact, yeah. and the London clubs would be digital. Um, so buried on ITV three, four, five, six, seven, or whatever number you want, there'd be us lots. And quite often we would be, um, occasionally we'd be away at Fiorentina 
for example, the night before our match in the uh, perhaps in the Europa League or on a, on a, no, that was right on a Wednesday night, but there'd be a Champions League match going on on a Tuesday night, and we'd have the evening off, so we'd all find ourselves watching this match in a in a pub in Fiorentina. And Drury loved these moments. He lived for these moments because he was unleashed, un, unconstrained by <laughs> unleashed. the unleashed, unfettered Drury. by the constraints of Ofcom or or, or or doing things in the perfectly manicured way verbally that he does. Uh, when he's actually broadcasting, I saw the raw Drury. And, and all that passion that comes across in his very erudite manner, just buried beneath the kind of velvety surface of his words. Um, forget mm. all that. It's just, it's just Drury going, shoot and kick him! Kick him! <laughs> Man on! He just becomes oh, a bellowing man. Really good Drury impression. <laughs> shoot! Really good. But, but I also work with him, I have to say, um, on... Uh, latterly, uh, uh, towards the end of my time at ITV Sport, uh, um, on the darts, on darts coverage. That yeah. we, but I, I still work on the darts, and Peter did two or three years commentating on the darts, which he did really well. And I remember seeing him sort of quite late on at the Civic Centre Wolverhampton, and he had his last match at ten o'clock at night that he was going to commentate on. And he said to me, "Do you know what, Ned? I'm going to have a pint of lager before I commentate." <laughs> <laughs> Something you'd never do for football. But um, yeah, I mean, Peter Drury, I think we can all agree, is one of the greatest things uh, in, mo- in the modern game. We certainly, certainly in the can. World. In the modern world. Yeah. Charlie, this is a huge moment for us because this makes Peter Drury the first to feature in the theme tune on an episode of Mesut Holland Dicks and as someone's choice for Mesut Holland Dicks. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to match this. No. Surely. No. And I wonder, is that the ultimate classy touch? I think and it is. And is, is this going to be a recurring theme? Mm. We don't want it to be too much of a loving, do we? Yeah, someone will choose Ned Bolting soon. It's fine. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> um, Peter Drury is a kind of recurring character in your book. He, he just weaves his way in and out of your life over the course of 20 years or so. There are a couple of exceptional scenarios that you present Peter Drury. <laughs> the first is Germany 2006 during the World Cup. This curious scenario of a big people carrier <laughs> driving around the country with you, Peter Drury, and Sam Allardyce. Big Sam. Big Sam. And um, you stop at a service station to um, <laughs> unload. Here it goes. Big Sam turned left. We heard a cubicle door slam shut. The soft sound of a pair of suit trousers and the metallic clang of a belt hitting the tiled floor. And then what I could only describe as a cry of victory from the Bolton Wanderers manager. Peter Drury and I dared not look at each other for fear of what might happen. Instead, wordlessly, we finished up and got out of the loo as soon as we could, only subsiding into helpless laughter when we were back in the safety of the car. What an image. It was the longest few hours of my life. I did wonder whether or not, you see, I had to have some distance from from football to write this book. I had to be very sure that at no point would I need to go back into the game and derive an income from it. Um, but once I sort of crossed that Rubicon, I, I realised it was probably all right to, to write that. And I was fully expecting the lawyers to pick up on it as well. <laughs> but, you know, I can stand it up in court. It happened. Yeah. Um, Charlie, we've, we've talked on this podcast about satisfying noises in football. Um, um, the <laughs> ball against a stanchion, for example, the, the thud of a 50-50 challenge. I don't think we ever considered <laughs> the metallic clang of Sam Allardyce's belts on a German service station toilet floor. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we can all imagine it perfectly. What was the roar, Ned? Could you could you could you recreate it for us? Well, it was, I suppose it's not dissimilar to the the Drury roar of of unfettered commentary, except sl- slightly more northern and a little bit lower pitched. But it was um, it was the it was the it was the sound. Is it that much of an achievement? It was the sound. Understand. It was the sound of a large ruminant mammal in pain. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that, that that journey across Germany with the three of us was I, I will never forget it. I will never forget the, the sheer unending monologue of Sam of Sam's commentary. But there we go. Yeah, I mean, I do remember this as well, because um, Johnny Lou and I think this did uh, get printed. I remember him finding this is when we were at the Telegraph and I remember him finding it. And there was some discussion as can we print this? <laughs> he was describing Sam Allardyce, the way he basks in the glow of victory in a press conference, and he described it as like a man savouring the smell of his own farts. Wow. <laughs> which, which, 
was absolutely genius and uh it sounds like maybe rooted in reality as well to some extent well that, that's yeah. enough fecal chat for now oh, sorry sorry about that that's all right let's let's move forward four more years to south africa 2010 now i've always thought of peter Drury as a man who lives and breathes football never switches off like he, he's always in love with the game even if he's not working at that particular moment but this is something quite different you're on the flight home neither of you seem to be covering um the final so you, you you're on your way we're home. The B- Don't forget, Adam, we're the, we're the B team, aren't we? Yeah, of so, course. You know, we, we, we've done a semi-final, haven't we? And then, t- and then bowed out. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's a cool place to be. Don't worry, it's fine. Yeah. So you're on your way home and the pilot on the flight says, I'll let you know over the tannoy as the goals go in. Suddenly, you say, from the row in front of me, Peter Drury piped up. Football's irrepressible enthusiast, the son of a vicar, and one of the nicest, most positively inclined colleagues I've ever worked with, shouted at the top of his goal-celebrating commentator's voice, don't care, don't care. Then, for the avoidance of doubt, he added, couldn't care less. <laughs> but there's always this, see, and that came across in your podcast, and I'd urge your listeners, if they skip that episode, to go back and listen to it. There is a, there is a, a um, Peter Drury is an eyes wide open kind of guy, and there is underlying everything that he thinks and feels about the game, a deep sense, and it's something that we shared, the two of us shared, a deep sense of the absurdity of the proposition. And so the two things, you know, I think we bonded over that and the two things in Peter live hand in hand. And I think that was that that was kind of maybe that and the odd the odd glass of wine that you might have had in the in the lounge uh, added to that sense of don't care. Um, we were heading home. Charlie, this is this is this is now the benchmark for our relationship. I think this is this is where I want to get to. This is how I want to be talking about you in 15 to 20 years. <laughs> this is this is amazing. Yeah. And uh and, and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to the commitment to that. Right, Ned, um, we've, we've, um, we've talked about Sam Allardyce in the toilet enough and indeed Peter Drury. What a man. Talk, tell me about your second fascination of football, please. Well, it's, um, it's a, a, a particular way. I thought this might be right up your strata, so to speak, mm. but it's a particularly truncated and uh, denuded form of sentence construction that seems to me unique to football punditry. It isn't something... So football punditry as distinct from um, football reportage or football commentary because mm. all these things are three very different uh, uh, um, um, uh, verbal environments but the pundit often when analysing a slow motion replay at half time or at full time uh, will say things like this he takes it early he scores or he goes down the referee's got no choice right now so as a linguist uh, there's a couple of things to observe about that and correct me if I'm wrong I might be using the wrong grammatical or syntactical terms but it's completely devoid of the word if, mm. you know, which which basically is the opening gambit of a conditional sentence construction. So what he really means is if he takes it early. Um, it's also the wrong tense um, because the all these things happened in the past. Yeah. So it's this kind of um, stripped down, bare language that is, I think, unique to football. But to me, is slightly reminiscent of of kind of the way that the military communicate with one another okay. in the sense that it's it's the bare essentials mm. of meaning um, devoid of any uh, frippery. And I think the bottom line of this is that uh, the pundit's work here is of such extraordinary importance that actually strip out all the decorative nonsense like conditional uh, conjunctives and actually just 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 boil down the raw distilled meaning. <laughs> And I think that's it because because it's so important. Yeah. Likewise, I don't know the exact grammatical term for what we're talking about here. Let's let's hear an example of it out in the wild. This is Joe Cole lamenting Chelsea's missed chances against Real Madrid in the Champions League quarterfinals. But if you had a player, what, what Lukaku was supposed to be that player, come in, we talked about the jigsaw, Benzema puts them chances away for Chelsea, Chelsea go through to the semi-final. I think that's the difference. <laughs> Spot on. Speaking of the jigs, I mean, there are a lot of puzzles we're having to put in. A lot yeah. of the pieces we're... But, but there is a thing. I mean, there's... In, um, in ancient Rome, there was this, there's a term, ascenditon, which is where you leave out the and or the but. And that's done for emphasis. So you think like, I came, I saw, I conquered is one of the most famous examples of that. You don't say, I came, I saw, and I conquered. Um, so, so rhetorically, that has... Uh, and it's seen as giving it greater emphasis. So when it's a commentator, and Drury does tons of these, tons of these rhetorical devices, you know, he is speaking in such a way. And it does actually have, you know, so it's rooted in, in the classical world. This, um, this particular tense creeps into other kind of forms of, of football chat as well, Ned. Um, you pointed out on Twitter the other day that it, it, it's kind of used for questions as well now, kind of predictions as well. Who wins the final? 
which it yeah. seems like a completely unnecessary present tense form. It just seems that why not just say who is going to win? Do you know what I mean? Yes, who will win? That would be the normal future tense, wouldn't it? These things are, are, are yet to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's this. The, yeah, exactly. You're kind of they're shrinking time. They're, they're 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 sort of like almost excising the past and the future as if everything is of such um kind of uh, skin thin importance that it must be dealt with in the here and now because that you can't you can't wait yeah. to find out on Saturday who yeah. will win. It's just this is it's it's of great immediate importance. This is the only explanation I can think of, Charlie, and I, I love this this particular tense and it's similar to the goal scorer's tense of you know I've, I've hit it and thankfully it's gone in mm. I consider them part of the crown jewels of the language of football because they're so unique to what we do and they're so, so beloved at least to me but maybe Charlie is kind of a natural result of wall-to-wall coverage where they're kind of permanently in the moment because previewing is boring and looking yeah. back is also yeah. actually quite boring so you just have to constantly be in the present is, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, me. Yeah, I think that it, there is something in that. But you, what's interesting because you, you, the historic present you hear a lot of. If if you listen to like an episode of In Our Time or something, and they'll be talking about some ancient thing that's happened, and they talk in this quite arresting historic present. So, you know, at, at this time, Caesar is losing popularity. He is. There's a lot of skepticism. Da, 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 da. But what football does, rather than historic present, you have almost this historic and imperfect. So you'll hear someone saying, "The ball has just come to me." Rather, you know, and it's it's you're not that's sort of in this weird in between zone, but we yeah. all recognise that, we all understand that, and I guess there is it does make it a bit more vivid and as if it is still a, a relevant current issue, as you say. The only um, the only other theory I had for this Ned is that perhaps it's to do with um, action replays in football, oh. so which, which kind of transport you back to the moment. They're not they're so it's not happening overtly in, it's recreating... retrospective, are they? It's recreating the real time. You yeah. are reliving it, and, and and life can only be done in the present. Yeah, yeah that's inter- That is interesting. It's mm. it's 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 live with a with a small L rather than a capital L mm. again. Yeah, that's that is interesting. I mean, I also think when I'm I'm writing, I'm I'm just finishing a book about cycling at the moment, and and uh, again, and a lot of sports writers have this quite lazy trope that we fall into when we're writing books, particularly as opposed to newspaper or online content, that you, you start a chapter in the present tense for some unknowable reason, just to give it a sense of immediacy. inauthentic yeah. immediacy. Yeah. So you say things like, I'm standing at the end of the tunnel, the sun is beating down, you know, it's quarter past two, what's going and then you slip back into the past to actually tell the story. Um, oh, but, but that, do you get loads of that in, in like newspaper and online writing as well, in interviews, you know, it will always be, you know, Ned, Ned chuckles as he... Uh, yeah. Exactly, as, you know, exactly, like... exactly. But it's rubbish, isn't it? I mean, it's just, but we all fall back on it and I hate myself for doing it because it just feels, oh, I've just done that. There's Did a gravitas really to it, it's that? undeniable, you know it's mm. true. I, 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 I don't like myself for doing it, but mm. occasionally it works. You're mm. right. You're Throw right. Throw in some poetry and you're really on your way. <laughs> <laughs> Stop trying to make football Radio 4. It's not going to work. Um, I don't think this next love of football is quite going to match the metallic sound of Sam Allardyce's belt hitting the floor. But, no. but um, let's give it a go anyway. What's your third fascination of football, please, Ned? Well, I've always been in awe of the way football managers, football people, real football people, are able to generate a uh, a shrill whistle <laughs> by just sticking, what is it, their little finger and their index finger I into the know. sides of their mouth and whistling. Because do you want to hear my... Here we go. So this is me trying yeah, to... Yeah, I'd want someone to have a go. <sighs> <laughs> it's, it's quite get, the image at least <laughs> yeah. it's not going to get anyone's attention the far side of the pitch is it when you know I want them all to come over in no. a training at a, a training exercise it's um it is part of the particular skill set of a football manager, Charlie. It seems disproportionately a skill <laughs> for football people. I don't know why I mean Ned can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not even going to try. Can you do it? Can, I can producer even, Dave do it? Can, can anybody can you, do it? Out imagine how impressed I was. I can't even do like a regular whistle. Oh, so I wow. remember the first time I saw people doing this and I was like, and also I remember asking, why are they doing that? How does that even make it? I, I was convinced it was just for show. But either way, I was like, this is, this is extremely odd and impressive. None of us. None of us are going to make it to the top of football management. We know this now. But Ned, it's a, it's a crucial tool 
in the football manager's skill set because, as we know from watching football over the years, you can never get a player's attention from shouting his name fewer than, say, four times. I mean, it's, yeah. you see a manager shouting a name, you think you're going to have to do it at least three more times to get that guy's attention. So a whistle uh, that, is all that they have. A, a, absolutely. And I, I I think I recount in the book, it's a while since I actually wrote Square Peg Rumble, but I, 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 I do remember... Um, being pitch side at a, an FA Cup replay up at Elland Road where Arsenal still with Arsene Wenger still with Pat Rice alongside him <laughs> right, so going, yeah. going back a good few years um, they were they were yeah they'd gone up there to play some unwanted FA Cup midweek replay against uh, Leeds United and uh, television pitch side reporters are often placed um, quite uncomfortably close to the bench and on this particular occasion I was right next to the bench I mean I was literally kind of I was virtually sitting on the bench and it took Pat and, and Arsene a little bit by surprise that that's where I'd been placed and they kind of they, they gave me a bit of a glance but then they <laughs> forgot about me and for the first time in my life I was actually able to hear what what the great cerebral phil- football philosophical Arsene Wenger was was actually instructing his troops with and primarily it consisted of bullying Nicholas Bentner for 90 minutes <laughs> um, and whistling so even Arsene oh, wow. can do that. But I think Arsene falls into that category of manager who don't even have to use the fingers to get that. I mean, that is next level kind that of is. whistling. Like a no-look pass Do something with your upper... Yeah, you do something with your upper lip and tuck in your bottom Curl jaw. Your and, tongue, who knows? I God knows, very technical. Um, you mentioned there actually, Ned... Um, sort of roving reporters sat by the dugout. It, <laughs> whenever I see a kind of live game and the camera pans to the dugout, I always look behind to see who I can see sat in the seats <laughs> behind. And Charlie, I, you will always see like, a, I don't know, like a Jeff Shreve just sat there minding his own business. Like, well, you should be there. You should be in the shot. You're not doing anything. <laughs> but it's, my eyes are drawn to him, Charlie. It's like, well, I know you, so I'm looking at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's suddenly all you can see mm. in, the, uh, mm. in that just moment. Just minding his own business. Not doing anything, <laughs> yeah. What would you like him to be doing, ideally? I, I, I don't know. I don't know where, where this observation began. I don't know where it's supposed to lead to. Just sort of interviewing someone indiscriminately. But there I am. All I had this image of this, I'm just, just sat there, incidentally. What are you doing there? Why? The the various ways people can get into a football game, Ned, amazes me. And you, you wouldn't believe there have been occasions. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit lost to football now, so I don't know whether it's still the case. But there were many, many years, not so not so long ago, that um, big matches, particularly the FA Cup contract, would be simulcast. So you'd have like a satellite broadcaster and a free-to-air broadcaster both there at Wembley. In fact, there have been occasions where they couldn't even agree on one set of match coverage. So they... they one broadcaster had cameras on one side of the stadium and another had an entire range of cameras pointing the other direction at Wembley. Um, but nonetheless, even when they're sharing the same outside broadcast, they do have their own presentation teams in there and the jostling for position between the two pitch side reporters from opposing uh, TV stations has to be seen to be believed, you know. Of course, this this year's FA Cup final, Charlie, will be the first to be simulcast on BBC ITV for quite some time. I, it does make you wonder, do we need it to be... I mean, I, I realise there's a contractual wrangle. Yeah. A, there's a standoff there that's never going to get resolved. But do we need it on both channels? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, I've always felt that. It's always seemed. It's always just seemed like <laughs> spoiling us. We're gorging mm. on this game. Yeah. What's the benefit? All I can think of is my parents going, why is it on both channels? <laughs> my, sorry, my, my dad isn't Richard Keyes. So yeah, I don't know why I do that. <laughs> that's all I've I got. My um, voice and Richard Keyes' voice. That's it. I, I think the straightforward reason is, and of course, don't forget it happens during the Euros and the World Cup as well, yeah. doesn't it? Both, you know, ITV will always lose sort of eight to on a factor of eight to one um, because they show adverts um, apart from anything else. Um, and but I think it's something to do with seeing the tournament through, isn't it? You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the FA Cup uh, is obviously a very valuable asset to ITV Sport, but for them to go for them to go all the way to the final and then just not bother showing the final because yeah, what's the yeah. point? You know, for the, is a bit like I think they just have to take that extra step. But it is a bit odd. I, I agree with you. Uh, one final point on this on this tangent we've gone down. Uh, I learned from your book, uh, former Touchline reporting titan Gary Newbon. Mm. was responsible for tossing the coin to decide who got first dibs at an England game at a tournament. This is, what a job. Uh, what an yeah, honour. Yeah, ITV's official tosser. Yeah, <laughs> that's how, literally how Gary used to describe himself with a great deal of, great deal of glee. I didn't, know yeah, I, mean, it, I didn't know how that was done. Wow. There's, 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 I mean, the, the discussions, you know, they vary the form that they take, but every to- summer tournament, they will have to sit down and thrash this out. And mm. both sides, if you like, have the right to show everything. Yeah. So, so, so the BBC has this um, sort of uh, this this kind of um, blanket option available at them at any time, which would completely destroy ITV's summer tournament if they just went. 
oh, do you know what? We're not going anywhere with this negotiation. We'll just show every match. And ITV go, but, 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 you know. So there's a degree of gentlemen's, and uh, let's face it, a lot of the staff have flip-flopped between the two yeah. organisations down yeah. the years. So there, there are personal relationships there as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no taboo to, for moving between them, is there, Charlie? It's fine. You can do a Lee Dixon. No one's going to care. Yeah, it seems to be, though. I remember, though, obviously, when, when Des Lynham did make that move, it was, mm. I know, it was a different thing. Oh, but yeah, there's was, a line. There's a line that, that should be That was enormous. Definitely. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. You're listening to Meza Harland Dix with Neb Bolting. We've covered the metallic clang of Sam Allardyce's belts on the German toilet floor and the shrill football whistles of football managers and indeed the very weird tense that we all talk in when we discuss football. Um, let's get on to the exciting bit, Ned. I want to talk about your irritations of football. Tell us about your first one. Cool. This was a real where do you begin? I didn't, know, <laughs> I didn't know quite where to start with this. But I've gone for something that instinctively I suddenly thought about and I thought, God, yeah, I've never said this out loud before. But it used to be a bugbear of mine when I was doing the, the touchline interviews or the pitch side interviews or down the tunnel, so to speak. It's always a tunnel. Often it's not nothing to do with the tunnel, but let's call it the tunnel. Anyway, players and managers who won't look you in the eye once you've asked the question. They will look while you're, they'll look at their shoes during the question mm. and as soon as the question is done they'll flip their head up to an angle of about 15 degrees above your eye line and then they'll just carry on rotating between the top right hand <laughs> corner of the room and the top left hand corner of the room but they won't, they won't actually engage you in eye contact at any point. I seem to remember, I wrote, denied to you Adam when I said, said I was going to I was going to raise this subject. I seem to remember that Frank Lampard was a pretty okay. convincing exponent of that. I haven't watched enough Lampardian interview mm. um, since he's become a manager to know whether he's been schooled out of it. But certainly as a player, he was very reluctant to actually um, talk to us <laughs> properly <laughs> as human beings. And then it suddenly occurred to me before we started recording just now that Harry Redknapp okay. was mm. a big, was very, very proficient at not, at, you know, at not actually, not actually looking you in the eye. It's a particular form of rudeness. Oh, right. Okay. I think, you think, I think, it, okay, I think, you think right. it's deliberate then. Well, imagine if you went round someone's house <laughs> okay. for a cup of tea yeah. and sat there opposite them and they made a kettle and, you know, and they said, how are you doing anyway? What are you up to? And you just looked up at either corner of and nowhere but at them at any given point. And then after two and a half minutes, you left. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember knowing someone who would, he'd, he'd shake your hand and look the other way, not looking the other way. And it, was, and it definitely felt like a power play. And I guess that's what this... Uh, what you're suggesting is is partly the motivation behind it. You've come to the right place with this kind of granular level of observation, Ned, because um, only now have I started to think about the optimum place that an interviewee should look 
during a post-match interview. But players and managers have this get-out. They have one angle that I think they should be allowed, if, if, if indeed they are so rude they don't want to look you in the eye, which is mm. to sort of nod towards the pitch. Say, out there. <laughs> out there. <laughs> it's weird because it's completely unnecessary, but it, it's, it's instinct. It's, it's in their DNA to look towards the battle arena and say, we're out there, we gave everything, and now we're going to go out there again. And even if they're talking about a match in the future, they will still nod towards the pitch that they were just playing on. So um, that's their place. That's that's where they belong. So you've got to give them a little bit of leeway, right? I think that's fair enough. You've put me back in my box. um, And that's a very good observation. It's an unconscious sort of psychogeography almost, isn't it? They've got this, uh, yeah, yeah, I I, I think that's right. Like a pundit who points behind him, Charlie. With his thumb. <laughs> it's always the thumb. Never the finger. I don't understand the, why. Out there. The thumb's most impactful, isn't it? It is. It feels most forceful yeah, somehow. It's very proper football man, the thumb. But I can't think of anyone better to be on this podcast than to explain the sheer banality of some elements of football mini interviews, Ned. Because um, there's, there's one aspect of this that you, you paint so perfectly and it's just made me think, wow, why didn't I ever think of this before? Which is the setup for an interview yeah. in, in the lead up to a game that you you'll do with a player or manager mm. and and you and as you say more often than not there was only a small room at our disposal with a plain white wall and a couple of plastic chairs it's for that reason that so many pre-recorded interviews with footballers you see before matches are shot against a black background every cameraman carries with them a few black drapes which are used as a regular emergency measure simply to erase the ugliness of the real surrounding in which the interview is actually taking place. Mind blown! I always thought that there was these special kind of, I don't know caravans that these things took place in but no just a bit of black curtain that's it yeah yeah no it's an emergency measure to actually dress the thing up wow. and give it anything that you know any kind of texture whatsoever and I, I think it was born of there was a film wasn't there years ago called band of brothers where it had all these d-day veterans mm. um t- you know s- s- shot against a black backdrop and talking directly to the camera sometimes and uh, you still get that in very posh football features when they yeah. talk directly to the camera but that requires a special setup that's complicated to explain but but the black backdrop might have come from Band of Brothers I think because it's um but it is you know it's like I, I, I do have to sort of in mitigation or, or to all football producers and reporters who are still out there God knows how they find the kind of moral courage to still be doing their job but they're still out there plugging away doing it week in week out at Man City and Tottenham Hotspur's training grounds etc in their defence I know them and I know that they will be going in thinking anything but a black backdrop anything anything but just something give me a pot plant give me a <laughs> just not something that says I live in the real world this is a real place you know this is why you set such a premium on uh, and this is true of the print media but it's especially true of the broadcast media you set such a premium on getting them away from the training ground that's a huge 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 kind of um ambition that is very very seldom able to be fulfilled on any sort of terms whatsoever but instantly instantly you see the person the subject in a different light i mean charlie now i now i've got my head around the kind of logistical nightmare of of just going to random places and interviewing footballers and having to kind of mitigate against that but it still stuns me or or has stunned me historically that, that that's the setup that they go for an entirely black environment except for a massive spotlight directly in the player's <laughs> face like you can actually see the light next to them and thinking is this it is this yeah. how it's done the, why the, this will make them feel at ease yeah, <laughs> yeah we're gonna waterboard you in a minute <laughs> Just tell us your chances for the next round of the FA cup <laughs> very good i mean you're I, I i don't think i'm going too far by saying your disillusionment with certain aspects of football reporting gets to the stage where you say even as I reviewed the footage or sat in the edit suite as the final cuts were being made, and sometimes when I was actually filming them, I became acutely aware that these were the bits of telly that no one cared about in the slightest. <laughs> oh, mate. <laughs> Is it, are these particularly sort of pre-game things, would you say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the post, you know, the post-match interview is actually genuinely, I think, something that people occasionally hold on to see. But very few people in this day and age, I think, sit down <laughs> a full hour before kickoff, a half an hour before kickoff, and go, "I just, I got to make sure that I don't miss that." <laughs> yeah, you know, it's true. It that, is true. Um, that, that, that interview with it. yeah, that pre-match interview. I mean, they are they are an exercise in banality, and I, I just a start, and I really do, and I mean this without a shred of kind of like snidey irony or anything. But I doff my cap to I think the master of them, 
because he does get he does manage to make something out of nothing a silk purse out of a, a a cow's ear a pig's ear um every time he does it and that's gabriel clark of whose mm. whose work is i don't know if gabriel's ever come on your show but you should get him on you know his work is just on a different level to anyone else's and you do genuinely feel like you're learning something about either the the player he's featuring or the history of the the club that he's um that he's delved into and but he does you know he's very few and far between and i wasn't in his class frankly um uh, but you know but yes but even gabriel's pieces how many people actually actually sit down and um and give them the due consideration that they deserve i don't know it's so interesting isn't it imagining actually tuning in really looking you know what would you be waiting for what would you be hoping to get out of you'd be like oh i just can't wait to hear his views on the game coming up i'm just so excited to see if he's you know if he he thinks it's going to be a good game or not well there is a certain pleasure in that stretch of time before kickoff isn't there that that you know where nothing has gone wrong yet nothing has gone wrong yeah. i have this theory i have this theory about you know about football that um the reason that you cheer disproportionately when your side wins a corner uh, is because not because you think because you're perfectly aware you're an informed football fan so not because for a second you think we're about to score because no one ever scores from corners it's incredibly rare um, so, so forget that. But what's what the point is for the next twenty seconds or so? Nothing can go wrong. <laughs> uh, and that's that's you're insulated. That that's is true. the subconscious. It's the subconscious motivation behind that absolute yelp that you give when your side wins a corner. Nothing can go wrong. And I think I think that's a bit like the build up to the match that matters a great deal to you. You might sit down twenty minutes before, go rub your hands with a cup of tea and go, yeah, because at least nothing can go wrong until the match is then actually <laughs> kicked off, you know. So there used to be a pleasure. But I mean I think you know it's, there's too much of it, isn't there? There's too much football on the telly. And yeah, it's I not... think I think you're probably right, but you know it is what it is. And if if I could finally undermine 33% of football coverage a little further, here's this final mm. passage. These interviews you say as far as I could tell, were the necessary irrelevance. But the reason they were considered essential had long since been forgotten. Like cigarette lighters in cars, they simply were nicely put. They just exist. (laughs) That's it. We just assume (laughs) that they must exist and therefore they do. So, uh, yeah, nicely done. Um, Let's hear about your second irritation of football, please. I'm I'm slightly worried about this one, about where it's going, but let's do it anyway. Well, it's Jose Mourinho. And and it's this... um, Jose Mourinho, of course, we all know, um, was Bobby Robson's interpreter, wasn't he, back in the day. So before he became this all-conquering gargantuan football manager, he was famed for his linguistic skills, which, um, don't get me wrong, are great in that funny way that Portuguese people... Uh, who are native Portuguese speakers sound like they're speaking Russian. Yes, which they is, do. Mm, you know, they speak, you know, it's always been a fascination. Yeah. Curious, um, curious things. So they're, they're not speaking Russian, but speaking English with a Russian accent. Um, anyway, my contention is that Mourinho's English, um, two, two things really about it. One is for all the time that he's lived in London and worked in English football for his three different clubs, has not greatly improved since when he first arrived. And secondly, when he first arrived, was okay. I mean, it gets you a B at A level, right? but hasn't really kicked on from there. And, <laughs> and of on. course, hasn't kicked on. <laughs> but, See, but, you're still but, in football chat. You know, yeah. You've still got it. And, and you just can't stand still in linguistics. Just, no, um. yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, but, but it goes back to the, the famous uh, I am the special one press conference, which mm. I think, you know, he has marketed. It became his absolute, uh, his, you know, defining image. Um, but I think it all comes from a linguistic slip up and the fact that he didn't mm. really understand the true meaning of the English word special. Oh, OK. Because, mm. um, because in many, many, uh, I don't know Portuguese. So I'll preface this with I don't know Portuguese, but I do speak French. I do speak German. I do have a, a smattering of Italian and bits and pieces like that. Now, the word the word special in most of those languages simply means particular. Okay. Right? It means particular. One oh, that wow. is apart mm. or differently defined from everyone else. Mm. But there's no value judgment in it. Whereas in English, when you say special, there is a value judgment attached, which mm. means I am better than the rest. I think Mourinho was simply translating from his own language and actually didn't mean to boast. I think he was just saying, no, I'm not like... Because remember that the rest of the quote mm. was something like, I'm not one from off the shelf. I am, I am a particular type of football manager. Yeah. This is, is an interesting he, twist. Is in what this. he meant? This is a very um, interesting twist in this because Charlie, of course, the the original um, aspect of this was people, of course, that he said he uh, I am a, spe- a special one, and yeah. now we have this extra complication that I'd never even considered before. So yeah. it's, all, it's a complete myth. 
I'll think that's, re- that's really interesting. But that is also a really important distinction, the the special one and a special, because he says I'm a special one. Is Does he? Is that what he says? Yeah, he says, I think I am a special one. Well, I think that backs up my, my contention still further that, you know... It does, the, yeah, because it, it would the be special one I'm make, the particular one, but I'm a particular <laughs> yes. one. Is, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and that, that, always, that always annoyed me. And then it, the self-proclaimed special uh, one. Yeah. yeah. But, but I think, <laughs> but having said that, I think once it was explained to him how it had gone down... You know, uh, he he didn't kick against it, did he? I think it was kind of, oh, did I say that? Didn't mean to. Who cares? Once you become self-proclaimed, there's no way back. Yeah. The big six, the the special one, that's it. Self-proclaimed tinker man. You can't undo an acclaiming. um. (laughs) The unself-proclaimed. But it's interesting um, because I, covering Spurs, I did have to transcribe a lot of Mourinho press conferences and became very familiar with some of his linguistic quirks. He he pronounced throw in in a really weird way. He said threw in. He just couldn't say it. Or, it was really yeah, weird. Yeah, I can hear that. Yeah. And uh, threw in. It was really in odd. this segment of the podcast. Yeah, I know. I'm oh aware. Goodness. Yeah, I mean, this man who speaks like six languages, but given given the topic and he always, and this is so granular, instead of apart from, he always said a part of, which I always just thought was a little quirk and he always did it. No didn't wonder. kick on. He no didn't kick on. He, exactly, he just didn't <laughs> kick on. Conte as well now is fascinating because especially, because when he was out, when he started at Spurs, restart, it, it was kind of relearning the English language and you could see that and it was quite interesting and seeing now he's sort of uh, getting back on the horse. Interesting that you mentioned Conte actually, Charlie, because he's a very good example of what I want to talk about with Ned next, which is perhaps kind of the other side of what he's presented here, which is managers with a decent grasp of English being presented with colloquial English phrases, harmless, <laughs> innocuous <laughs> colloquial <laughs> English phrases in interview so questions. And I, and so I sit there midway, midway through the sentence and I look at the face of someone like Antonio Conte saying, he is either not going to understand this and going to give, answer a completely different question or he's going to get annoyed and ask them to repeat it. And, and, and let me think of an example. I don't know. It's... Um, it was something like, oh, Antonio, your team didn't beat around the bush, did they, today? It's something like that. I mean, I realise that that's completely outlandish and wouldn't happen. But something along those lines. And I just think, don't ask Flatter to deceive. Yeah. Flatter to deceive. Yeah, yeah. Have you, remember, did, did your think... team flatter to deceive a bit today, Antonio? <laughs> I completely agree with you, Adam. This is a huge bugbear of mine. <laughs> but it, but I think it, I think it boils down to the fact that most of the most of the British press pack have no second language at their command and therefore have never been in that position of having to deal with a colloquialism coming in the opposite direction. Yeah, so I guess so. They don't really identify with that, um, with, with that, with that. but I completely agree with you. I remember this with Mourinho and I, I'm sure this is an example, or maybe I just made it up in my head of, uh, I think she was saying to him something like, you know, and was it a case of locking the door after the horse had bolted? <laughs> and you just think, how hard, like how hard it must be anyway to speak in a second or third or fourth language. <laughs> Given as well, I think for Conte and all these managers, how much we're pouring over every word. You know, you've got pricks like me calling out a part of instead yeah, of a part from. And, and how hard that must be, let alone chucking colloquialisms at them. I can't believe nice. I'm the least cheap shotty person out of the three of us right now. This is amazing. Who am I, am I sticking up for these people? But Charlie, you've, you may have stumbled across like a hard and fast rule here, given how unhelpful we've been for the last two minutes. I would say if you preface a statement with Manager X, is this potentially a case of... If you if anything that comes after that will be a colloquial English phrase, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Banned. Uh, it would make everyone's life so much easier and it would stop me squirming in my seat during a post-match interview. Good. Problem solved. Thanks, Ned. Thanks for that one. Very good. Right. Your final irritation of football, please. Well, it's golf. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's, that's the irritation. Right. There's too much. There's too much love for golf in the footballing world. Now... I was going to say I've got nothing against golf, but I have got a lot against oh, golf. Wow, okay. Because I think it's actually quite a good game, potentially, to play if you're any good at it. But that's where it stops. Everything else associated with golf, from the racism through to the clothing, through to the inordinate financial excess and the environmental damage it does, is atrocious. I see. Um, but that doesn't stop every footballer I've ever met from. And I genuinely think that, you know, a lot of very successful footballers aren't. Be- by dint of their entourages, are not um, given naturally to great doses of humility. Mm -hmm. And yet, in the presence of a middle-aged golfer who uh, they'd heard of, they would probably melt and be in in awe of uh, Mm. said golfer. Uh, They are, golfers are some of the very few people, particularly I should imagine American golfists, uh, probably among the very few people to whom footballers 
top 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 footballers would genuinely doff their caps mm. i think it is um, it is a fascinating obsession for footballers charlie but i think i feel like i can get my head round why so many elite level footballers play golf it's it's an individual sport so it's kind of a break from the kind of collective responsibility you can play it with pretty much anybody you like and as ned points out it's mostly kind of their closer circles, the people who they might not play football with or whatever. Nobody's going to bother you because you're on an exclusive golf course most of the time. It's peace and quiet. It's competitive to an extent, but at the same time, it kind of fulfills their need for relentless self-improvement. It's something for them to focus on and get better at. So all those things considered, it seems perfect for a footballer. I, I can understand why they're all out there in their droves. Plus it's daytime. And they've got a lot, you know, it, it, it's a daytime <laughs> activity. And they're, they're, they're going to lend, you know, they'll have a fair bit of time after training or whatever mm. it's it's yeah it's it's sport without being physically exerting mm. you know they're not going to allow them you're not going to be playing rugby on their days yeah, off. it's not going to be in anybody's contract is it you know yeah Schwartz could go so. to space but he probably was allowed to play golf <laughs> but that thing as well the the deferring is is so spot on like the harry kane i was think of in this you know in this regard you know he went to the masters and um i think was a bit in awe of some of mm. those golfers mm. um mm. It, they are on this kind of elevated level i mean retired retired footballers who make their way into television studios in whose company i've spent many many hours and days Mm. and weeks of my life in airport terminals and in spanish restaurants and stuff service stations um but they will you know they will they will talk about football for a for for a little spell about what you know what the last match was in man city real madrid in this case and we'll have a little chat about that and then maybe another match will get mentioned and then a player transfer and then there'll be a little pause in the conversation and then I can guarantee the next question will be you've been out much or you got round in recently mm-hmm. and then and then that's where you just bow out if you've got no knowledge I mean it is it's uh it is a curious obsession and it what amazes me is it seems to show no sign of um sort of letting up with the passing generations it seems to suck the youngins in yeah. every bit as much as it uh, keeps a grip on the oldies as well but I think it, Adam in fairness your summary um, was spot on and I think that it, that goes a long way to explaining it and um, I don't think the symbiosis in golf and football is going anywhere anytime soon oh, I'll take that um, I mean yeah okay so we've established Charlie why footballers play golf but I am also fascinated by footballers being in awe of other sports and the elements of other sports the people the venues and that sort of thing because as a purely football man I, I, see, I, I consider football to be the peak of everything. So if, you, if you're famous at playing football, then you shouldn't be overawed by anything else. But um, an equivalent to golf in this, in this scenario is snooker. Footballers love snooker. And I've got two examples here of perhaps the most crucibly Premier League players showing up at the World Championship over the last couple of days and being asked the most footballers at a different sports event questions possible. <laughs> It really is the absolute cross-section of this mini-genre. First of all, here's Matty Cash at the Crucible. As a professional sportsman who's used to dealing with huge pressure, what do you make of the physical layout of the Crucible? Because when people come here for the first couple of times, they suddenly realise this this is tight. Yeah, no, I think it's a different type of pressure, really. I I remember coming, (laughs) obviously, last year when I came, and I was nervous myself, and I weren't even playing. Um, so yeah, I think it's still on the man and there's a lot of pressure and honestly watching the players and seeing what they do is unbelievable. I love it. it, it oh, it's, that's good. Everything. It's, it's, it's a different type of pressure. Yeah, because <laughs> it, it sounds diplomatic, Ned, but it's not. I mean, there was a real innocence to it there. He was properly like, oh my God, I'm in the middle of the crucible. This is unreal. Yeah. It was lovely to behold, yeah. and I'll take that over the Belfry any any day of the week. <laughs> uh, it's, no, it was a very it was a lovely response, and it's and it's also right. I mean, it's correct. Yeah, absolutely. But so, Charlie, yeah. it's always you know you've been in football situation X. Can you imagine being in other sports situation Y? I mean, it must be wow. No, but listen, you know, I mean, it's always because it's, it's always that transferable <laughs> thing of the yeah. uh, of, of the pressure. Yeah, the pressure. That's the universal thing, isn't it? That, that's what that's they can it. all relate to, yeah, isn't it? Completely. Okay, next up, here's the here's the other half of this mini subgenre. This is James Madison being uh, semi-willingly corralled into a small frame of snooker with John Parrott. Big snooker fan? Very big snooker fan. Yeah, yeah. We've got uh, we've actually got a few at Leicester. To be fair, we like it. We watch it, and we get down to the local Rileys and have a little have Does, a little go. Are you the best player or not? Oh, I can't actually tell. I think Jamie Vardy's the best. Jamie Vardy's yeah, the he's, best. He's very good. He um. I tell you, well, that's very good, by the way. I tell you, by the time we finish here, we'll give Jamie Vardy a run for his money. <laughs> Charlie, very I put good. it to you that it's absolutely imperative in this situation that you must divulge the information 
of who is the best at Sport X in your team. <laughs> but but the funny thing is, I, I find that endlessly fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm aware it's complete sort of filler puff content, but I'm all for it. I want to know who's good at snu- who the best snooker player in the yeah, Premier League. Yeah, no, is, team who the best wise, table good tennis to be fair. Is. He's good to be fair. Uh, he's not bad. <laughs> not bad. Yeah, not no, Kalechi's not bad. Kalechi's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> Um, darts is a darts is a big one as well. Yeah. And James yeah. James James Milner was widely acknowledged, wasn't he, to be the, the best darts player in uh, in his every team he's played for of his so, generation of his generation, <laughs> the best footballing dartist. Okay, yeah. so we started with the Ampfif, Ned. It's Ab-fif time now. for the Abfif. They sound basically mm. the same. They need to work on that. Okay, I'll tell them. Please do. If you could get on the phone to Germany, that would be great. I know you've been there frequenting its darkest corners. Um, that yep. it was indeed the final whistle. Now, Ned, could you ever be tempted back to football coverage? Because I think there's, I think I found a place for you. If, if cycling does, as it seems to me, get a little bit boring, I think there yep. is a route back. Hmm. England games are on Channel 4 this summer. The final Ooh. piece of the terrestrial jigsaw. They've been on BBC One. Charlie, I've also discovered they've been on BBC Two after all. Oh, wow. A couple of times. The, t- the famous Terry Butcher blooded bandage game was on BBC Two, would you believe? Wow. Uh, the six o'clock news would not shift. So they put it on BBC Two. They've been on ITV, as Ned well knows. But Channel Four, the final frontier of the terrestrial... Mm. I mean, because they've done Channel 5 famously. As yeah, well, Jonathan Pierce, etc. Yeah. 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 There's yeah. a long read that we should be in 98. Doing. Yeah. Big yeah. time. But... Um, do you fancy it, Ned? No. Oh, wow. no, it's the Nations League. No, I'll let you do no, a poem. No. <laughs> no, do you know what? It's a good game to watch, isn't it? I don't mind it at all. Um, I just don't want to see it up close and personal, but I'm quite happy watching occasionally on the couch. And, and, um, and my, my newfound love for Peckham Town FC in the 11th division as well. I like going down there. So, yeah, uh, but honestly, not being involved is the best place to be. Okay. Oh, yeah. So if you've got your non-league badge of um, badge of honour, so it's I've, lit- I've literally got an, an, an enamel badge of honour. Oh, you're a um, football yeah. hipster officially. I, well, that's pretty hip, isn't it? Peckham yeah. Town FC. Yeah, I was, was a match day. I was the match day sponsor there a few weeks ago. I sponsored the match. <laughs> what the whole yeah. match? The whole match. Not the ball. Was, not was mine. Shirt. No, I just had the match. All oh, right. For Did me you have a little hoarding with your name on? That, no, I got an enamel badge for hundred quid. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay. Um, thank you so much for sharing your footballing fascinations and irritations with us. Square Peg Round Ball, Football TV and Me by Ned Bolting is out now. I've read it, I paid for it, and it was great. Thank you, Adam, and I've really enjoyed talking. It's been a lot of fun. Cheers, Ned. Cheers, Cheers. Charlie. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ned. That was brilliant. And we'll see everybody for the adjudication panel on Tuesday. The Athletic. <laughs>